Welcome to the Essential Geopolitics Podcast from Stratfor, a RAIN company. I'm Emily Donahue. On this podcast, the topic is the geopolitical implications of the EU's budget fight. And here to provide guidance is Adriano Bassoni, Stratfor's senior European analyst. Hey, Adriano. Hey, Emily. Nice talking with you again. It's great to have you here. Um, Let's jump in and talk about Poland and Hungary vetoing the EU's budget. What are the reasons behind this decision? Well, in July, the European Union member states reached a landmark agreement to spend 1.8 trillion euros over the next seven years, including a package of 750 billion euros of COVID-19 related relief measures. So it was a really historic moment back then. The thing is, they decided that the disbursement of money should be connected to countries keeping a strong rule of law um, because there have been concerns over in recent years that the rule of law is weakening in countries like Poland, Hungary and a few others. When the member states were about to give the final approval to this budget in um, early November, Hungary and Poland decided to use their veto power because they are worried that this um, mechanism to connect the money to the rule of law will target them specifically. We have to keep in mind that the EU has opened investigations against um, Budapest and Warsaw over issues such as uh, their reforms of the judiciary, pressure of the government on critical media, and and so on. Um, This has immediate implications. Um, We are talking about a lot of money. Uh, As I said before, 1.8 trillion euros. It's money that countries in in Southern Europe, like Italy and Spain, which have been heavily affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, need desperately. So the most obvious implication is that the longer it takes for this money to be released, the slower the economic recovery in Europe. And we have to keep in mind that Spain, Italy and a few others are already factoring in this money in their budget for next year. So if the money doesn't arrive on time, they will have to make new plans. But of course, there are much deeper questions, such as how do you deal with countries that question some of the EU's fundamental values? And how do you manage a continental bloc where crucial decisions are still taken using unanimity, which means that individual member states have veto power? Um, To make a long story short, there's the big issue. How do you deal with the European Union that is so big and so um, difficult to handle, especially when it has to face um, significant challenges like the COVID-19 pandemic? So, Adriano, can the EU break this stalemate? Yes, the EU has proven to be very creative when with dealing with similar crises in the past. There's a few things that the European Union can do. Um, for instance, they can adopt a much narrower definition of the rule of law. In um, September, the German government proposed to sever EU funding only when corruption or misuse in the handling of EU funds is detected, which is, of course, a narrower interpretation of what rule of law means, right? But the thing is, France, the Netherlands, and a few others don't like this narrow definition, and they want a broad definition of of, of the rule of law to include issues like I mentioned before, like the independence of the judiciary or the independence of the media and, and so on. So if the Germans push in that direction, they will have to convince many other countries. 
Another option is to change the voting mechanism to approve sanctions. Um, and, and here I mean changing the way that sanctions are approved so that countries like Hungary and Poland have a hope that they will be able to block any sanctions against them if they if they make a coalition of countries that are willing to help them prevent the money from being stopped. Um, then the EU could also issue some kind of document declaration saying that this is a mechanism that is not specifically targeted against Hungary and Poland, which of course is true, right? This is just a, a, a way to link money to keeping a strong rule of law. Um, but of course... Budapest and Warsaw will probably reject such an offer because it would not be legally binding. You can't say that a mechanism will never be used against a specific country. What if they have to use it, right? So they could try to promise um, Hungary and Poland that things will be okay, but I'm not sure it will work. And then you have the nuclear option. This is the most extreme of the options on the table, which is exclude Hungary and Poland from the COVID-19 recovery fund. Um, the EU could change the legal status of the fund and say this is not an EU fund, this is an intergovernmental agreement between 25 of the 27 members of the European Union and it does not include Hungary and Poland. So we don't worry, we don't care about their veto power because they are not part of the program. But of course this is the extreme option, this is the nuclear option, this is an option that the European Commission and, and, and several governments will try to avoid as much as they can and also you risk alienating the very same governments that you are trying to cooperate with, which are Hungary and Poland. Yeah, it does sound it does sound like that would be a tricky option. So what does this dispute say about the process of EU integration overall? So episodes like these highlight how difficult it is for the EU to make big decisions because the EU has to reconcile the interests of countries that often have very different strategic priorities. You have a block of 27 countries with 27 different national and foreign policies and you have to find a consensus among all of them. Um, and this is probably frustrating for the authorities in Brussels because 2020 was a remarkable year in the sense that for the first time the EU approved this massive recovery package that authorizes the European Commission to borrow from financial markets to pay for stimulus, um, which seemed, if you ask European Union officials two or three years ago about this, it would have seemed impossible. But then COVID happened and the impossible became possible, right, to, to authorize Brussels to borrow and to issue debt on behalf of the, of the members of the European Union. So this shows that the EU is willing to make bold moves and move forward uh, during times of crisis with decisions that only a year or two ago would have seemed impossible. But then you have the frustrating element, which is that the complexity of the EU's legal framework and decision-making process makes these decisions very hard to apply uh, because if you have countries with veto power which are willing to use that veto power then you have problems like the one that they are facing with with with, with the budget so going back to to what i said before this raises very uncomfortable questions for the future of the eu what do you do with a block that has become so big so cumbersome so difficult to handle especially during times of crises do you compromise with the rebel countries at the risk of 
approving watered down policies. The EU has done this in the past. They, they have chosen to move very, very slowly, but incrementally, watering down uh, policies when you have to, but keep the process going. Or do you exclude the countries, the rebel countries, but at the risk of deepening the fragmentation in the bloc? Do you do what maybe France and a few others want, which is let's forget about those um, problematic countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Let's just move on with the integration ourselves and let them do whatever they want. But of course, this um, deepens the fragmentation of the bloc, which is the opposite of what the European Commission is, 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 is meant to do. So these are all questions that will continue to come back to haunt the European Union, especially during times of crisis crisis like this. And there are no single answers. There are some, I've seen some opinions on the media saying, let's just punish Poland and Hungary. Let's let, let, let them kick them out of the European Union if they don't play by the rules. But it's not as simple as that. The funny thing, though, is that this is already having an indirect effect on the European Union. Uh, there is, um, quote-unquote, enlargement fatigue in the EU, in the sense that the EU has realized that it has become too large and too difficult to govern, and, and it's not ready to accept new member states. We have seen accession talks with candidate countries like Serbia or Albania or, or Northern Macedonia being virtually frozen because the European Union understand that things are very complicated as they are and, and this is not the right time to accept new member states. Thank you so much for that guidance. Of course, always a pleasure talking with you. Adriana Bassoni is Stratfor's senior European analyst. You can get more of Stratfor's intelligence and forecasting on this topic when you sign up for our free newsletter. Visit worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.